fed with spiritual food and literal food through a miraculous encounter. Peter and the others were finally beginning to understand, and he rightly confessed Jesus as the Christ. And as Jesus foretold of his death and his resurrection, he also challenged all with what following after him would truly look like and what it would look like for their lives. It would mean death to themselves, denial of self, a daily dying in order to gain true life. In a few moments, we're going to open up the scriptures to Luke chapter 9. And as we look in there, if you don't have a Bible or you need a Bible or an outline to follow along with this morning, our host would be glad to give you one. Just slip up your hand or catch their eye. And um, if you don't have a Bible of your own, keep that one. It is our gift to you to take with you, to keep, and to read it. Now, these disciples and the challenges that they received are the same for us. We're going to see a lot of challenges to the disciples. And I want us to not just look at what they did. Oh, and look what they learned, but what we can learn through these same challenges. We stand in awe of the view. We stand and cheer for what Jesus said for the reversal of what our flesh desires. We long to save our life, even if that means losing it. And even if what that actually means is a little bit fuzzy for us. Because the mountaintop view is majestic. Just the past few weeks, just in our life as a church family, we've gotten to reflect on Jesus' final week before his crucifixion. And we... um, got to remember through communion, so many of us, that what an encouragement on Palm Sunday of what Jesus accomplished for us and how he still ministers to us. And then we reflected on his death on Good Friday, but we knew that Sunday was coming. Jesus took his inner circle in this passage, in the passage just before this, up on a literal mountain, up on a literal mountain to see his majesty on full display, to see the glory of Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And they got to see him interact with Moses and Elijah, the representatives of the law and the prophets. And as Peter, James, and John were with him, they heard a voice from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The view could not be more clear. The message could actually not be more simple. It was a message that Jesus had often repeated in his teaching and throughout our series that we've seen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But here's the thing about mountains. It's not where we live. We don't live in the mountaintops. As much as we might want to stay up there, and as Billy Graham has famously said, mountaintops are for views and inspiration. But fruit is grown in the valleys. Where I grew up, there were certainly homes on mountains, but not many. It's just not where most people lived. It's where they would hunt. It's where they would hike. It's where they would go for leisure. It's where they would vacation or camp, but it's not where most people live. We all love to be in the mountains. Now, maybe not the literal mountains, but but often a different kind of mountain that we love to find ourselves in. Those mountaintop experiences, the spiritual highs, the vacation highlights, the perfect day, And those are good. They give us perspective. They give us inspiration. Those mountains spur us on and they often give us rest. Some of my favorite parts of student ministry are taking high schoolers to Momentum Youth Conference for a week to have those experiences, to take middle schoolers to camp, to go on retreats together. Those are the high peaks, but those aren't real life. And we don't live there. The week of VBS is a huge mountaintop of ministry for our church. 
but we don't have VBS every week. We couldn't. Life happens in the valley. Now, I've often shared this picture when I've talked about the value of camps and conferences or special events for kids and teenagers. It's kind of like a fence. Okay, you've got fence posts, and these special events are these fence posts that are deep in the ground that anchor the rest of the fence. They're the high points. They're the anchors. And without solid and regular fence posts, you can't have a fence. You would just have a pile of wood. But the days of our lives are made up of those planks of wood. And if you didn't have planks of wood stretching between the fence posts, you also don't have a fence. You just have a series of posts. And so both of those things work together in the normal, faithful, consistent, and ongoing ministry of the church. If you build your life with only periodic fence posts, only the special events, you don't have a fence. See, the challenge for us is to develop the slow, consistent patterns of faithfulness so that when failures come, and they will, and when valleys get dark, and they will, we can grow in the rich soil of faithfulness. In our passage today, we'll encounter multiple failures that the disciples had. And in their failures, we can see the tendencies that we too often have in our lives as we seek to follow Jesus. So as is often our practice, I want to invite you to stand in honor of the word of God as we read from Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look after my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and, suddenly, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Then John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Thank you. You may be seated. This is the word of God. As we look in our passage here, and we see all that there is for us in here, my hope for us this morning is that we will cherish the mountaintops, but that we'll embrace rather than recoil at the idea of walking through deep valleys that we'll humbly recognize that we have much to learn and that we'll stay faithful to listening to Jesus through his word. Our first point this morning is when our days are overwhelmed by difficulty, stay faithful. 
As the disciples will see and as the crowd saw, they were overwhelmed in this valley, this difficulty where they were waiting for the, Jesus and the disciples to come back. And we can relate to that because we have difficult days that overwhelm us. Stay faithful. The literal high point of this section of Luke sees Jesus and the three disciples coming down from the mountain into the valley. And for every hike of anticipation up a mountain, there's a descent filled with accomplishment and joy. Can you imagine the theological discussions that these four were having on the way down? Oh, it would have been amazing to listen to. They were caught up in the moment. They were surely taking it all in. But after that cloud had cleared and it was just once again the four of them, certainly the questions of who and how and why and what did we just experience, Jesus? These were being asked. I'd love to know what gaps Jesus filled in for these special disciples and what questions he left hanging. Without a doubt, this was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, one that Peter later wrote about in his second letter, which cemented his credibility as an eyewitness and confirmed the prophecy of Scripture as coming from God as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As they were presently overwhelmed by the majesty of the mountain, moments later they would be harshly reminded and greeted with the difficulties of life that were waiting to overwhelm them. Jesus and the disciples reunite with the other nine that didn't go up on the mountain. And amid a frenzied and distraught crowd, there was a desperate father. Real life is instantly in their face. There was no honeymoon phase coming off this mountain where they could go relax for a little while. It was right back to ministry. It was right back to real life. It was in their face. Now, the situation with this father's only son is dire. Luke gives us a really vivid description of the boy's condition. It says he was seized by the spirit. He cries out. It convulses him. He foams at the mouth. It shatters him. It hardly leaves him. And so this condition and the attention of this father, and I'm sure the boy's mother, would have had to be on high alert at all times. I don't know how old this boy was, but he's had this condition since childhood. But any parent of young children know the constant vigilance that must be paid in order to make sure kids aren't hurting themselves or they're not destroying things or they're not wandering off. And these are kids without demons, we assume, hopefully. <laughs> but this one we know had a demon. And so it was extra work. Now, Matthew and Mark, they fill in even more details about the boy's condition in their accounts of this story. Matthew and Mark say that he is often thrown into the fire and thrown into the water to kill him. The constant danger of burning or drowning is exhausting. You know this if you've ever camped with small children. You know that, this, that having a fire in the middle and then kids walking by it is constant high alert. To be near a stream, you've got to be careful. You've got to lay down the rules. But this boy, he was afflicted with something that was throwing him into these things. Mark describes the demon making the boy rigid, gnashing his teeth while robbing him of his speech. These parents are to be honored for loving their son so well that he would even still be alive to this point. But here's where we see the first failure of the disciples. The nine who did not go up on the mountain had to be overwhelmed by this difficulty. Just days earlier, they were sent out with power and with authority to drive out demons and to heal the sick. This should have been a layup for them. They've done it before. They've had success in these situations. And yet, they could do nothing. 
Imagine the disappointment of the father, probably given false hope from an outspoken disciple that said, hey, dad, we got this. Stand back. We've done it before. Nothing to worry about. Only to have nothing happen. And the conditions still plaguing his son. The disciples had to be perplexed. Why didn't it work this time? In Matthew, Jesus addresses the disciples' lack of faith. In Mark's account, Jesus says that this kind can only come out through prayer. See, the failure of the disciples to do what Jesus had empowered them to do was a result of their lack of faith and their lack of dependence on God, from whom the power and authority had been given. It wasn't their own power. It wasn't their own authority. Their failures were not for a lack of information either. It wasn't that they didn't have a perspective or proper instruction. They even had successes that should have led to avoiding the pitfalls that they'd encounter. But life is like that. Famous boxer Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. That's life. We have a plan. We may lay out our best plans, but then it all changes when something hits us. That punch to the face, the gut punches of life come, and suddenly we're not as prepared as we think we are. Have you failed in this way? Your great victory, your great mountaintop experience becomes your assumed reality. You may start with complete dependence on the Lord to accomplish what he's called you to, but after a while, your diligence turns lazy. We're called to stay faithful when our days are overwhelmed by difficulty. But it's also our faithfulness when things are going smoothly, when there's not troubles, that prepares us for those difficult times. I believe the disciples were learning a valuable lesson on the fly through these failures. Failure is a great teacher but it's not the teacher that anyone wants. But it's often the teacher that we need. You'll often hear coaches speak of the lessons that are learned through losses. And while a coach would never root for a loss, there's something about a loss that causes a team to look to the coach for guidance, to, to lean in for a little extra instruction, to not take for granted that success is going to be automatic. And a good coach is always teaching and always finding things that can be improved and motivate, but embraces the moment after a loss when they don't need to create a hunger or a thirst to learn in their team. So after recognizing the failure of the disciples and before he heals the boy, Jesus addresses the Israelite crowd. And in the hearing of the disciples, he uses a familiar, face that, a familiar phrase that Moses would have used and did use in Deuteronomy chapter 32. These were Moses' final words to the Israelite people where he recounted their failures, he lifted up the faithfulness of the Lord, and he called them to action. Here's what he said. Moses declared in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teachings drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children. And catch this, because they are a blemished. They are a, a crooked and twisted generation. See, Jesus says to this crowd, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? 
At the end of the song of Moses, at the end of his life, he gave this final charge. Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today. He's basically saying, listen to him. Listen to this. That you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word to you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. The disciples failed to perform a miracle. The miracle of healing this boy. But their real failure was their lack of faithfulness to hear and to live by the words that Jesus had been teaching all along. The same things that caused Israel to be a crooked, faithless, twisted generation. The same proneness to wonder that we could drift toward when faced with overwhelming difficulty. So the challenge for them and the challenge for us is to stay faithful. To stay faithful. When our days are overwhelmed by difficulty, stay faithful. Now back to the boy. If we had any doubts about the boy's condition and his present danger, even as the boy was coming to Jesus, he was thrown to the ground and he was convulsed. But Jesus showed compassion. He rebuked the unclean spirit and he healed the boy and gave him back to his father. What amazing relief. What joy. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. See, in the midst of this dark and troubled situation, one that felt utterly hopeless, especially after the disciples couldn't drive out the demon, the crowds recognized the majesty of God. From the glorious mountain that Jesus, Peter, James, and John had just left to the stark contrast down below in the valley, the same majesty was recognized. The majesty of God does not disappear in difficult times. Often, it shines even brighter. J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, says that the word majesty, when applied to God, is always a declaration of his greatness and an invitation to worship. While the crowds were marveling, celebrating this miraculous healing, Jesus pulls his disciples in close. And here's what he says. He says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man, hear the words, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The contrast that Jesus presents here to his disciples is jarring. They have to be thinking, Jesus, they love you. Like, you're doing amazing things and all of the crowd is praising you and praising God. These people love you. Are you watching the same thing we are? Jesus delivered into the hands of men, into these people's hands? In the second foretelling of his death, the, Jesus, the, the disciples failed to understand Jesus. I believe there's some layers to this lack of understanding, but the second challenge to us is that when our circumstances don't make sense, stay faithful. This didn't make sense to the disciples. They were overwhelmed by difficulty and they should have stayed faithful. And now things aren't making sense. It doesn't add up and they need to stay faithful. These circumstances made no sense to them. Jesus is beloved and yet soon to be rejected, to suffer, to be delivered into the hands of men. See, on the surface, they would have known exactly what he meant by being delivered into the hands of men because that means when someone is delivered, it is for judgment for their sin. They understood that. The, the, the things added up. It actually made sense. They just couldn't understand the deeper meaning of it. 
It is inconceivable to them that the one they follow, the one who lives to please and obey only God, would be handed over for judgment for sin. They failed to understand what they had already been told. They were told this once before already, but they'll have to be told it again. But Jesus knew this, so he urged them to let this important truth really sink into their ears. A similar challenge has been issued by Jesus over and over again throughout the Gospel of Luke, and especially in these three chapters that we've covered the last couple months. To hear and to listen. In this failure to understand, it was a failure to stay faithful to what they had already heard. A little rundown of some of these examples. In early chapter 7, he saw Jesus set an example because he saw the centurion's servant and he healed him and they heard the mourners for the widow's son before he brought him back to life. Jesus saw and he heard. And later in chapter 7, Jesus had put on a miraculous display for the disciples of John the Baptist and then sent them back to tell John, tell him everything that you have seen and heard. In the parable of the sower in chapter 8, Jesus calls out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then Jesus highlights the good soil as the heart that hears the word of God and holds fast to it. And then in the back half of chapter 8, Jesus gives practical examples through the obedience of the wind and the waves, through the demons in the spiritual world to follow his authority, and how even the dead hear and respond to Jesus' words of life. And then on the mountain of transfiguration, the voice from the cloud declared, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. See, the disciples were not part of this twisted and, and faithless generation. But they were prone to forget, to have ears that didn't always hear, to have hearts that didn't always obey, to be less than faithful at times. These words needed to sink into their ears. They still had lessons to learn in this valley. And so do we. The second layer to their failure to understand wasn't just confusion. The deeper meaning of what Jesus was saying and all of its implications was concealed for them so that they couldn't perceive it. See, Jesus is, is pointing out and preparing what his mission is truly to be. And it wasn't time for the full unveiling. But we can both understand it and perceive all that Jesus meant with no fear of asking him for understanding where we lack. And this is the ultimate display of the majesty of God. Because it's in Jesus, the sent one, who is the agent of salvation for all, that was, he was delivered into the hands of sinful men. It is in Jesus, the perfect one, becoming sin for us, so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. It's in Jesus who appeared to be defeated, ended up as the victorious one. It is in Jesus who's a miracle worker who lays down his life in what will look like sudden and tragic end to the hope that he offered others, but he offers real hope. It's in Jesus paying a debt that he didn't owe to atone for a debt that we could never pay. And after the majestic glory of Jesus was seen on the mountain, he descended to bring his greatness to the valley, to serve, to give, to lay down his life as a ransom for sin on another mountain that was yet to come, a hill called Calvary. It's through Jesus, when all was thought to be lost in the silence of Saturday, that death was defeated once and for all when he rose on the third day. 
The disciples couldn't know all of this yet. It was hidden for them. It was hidden from them, but later they would understand. Their aha moment was yet to come. But here's where we might find ourselves when difficulties overwhelm us and circumstances don't make sense. When we are walking an unknown path, we trust his words. We lean into his promises. We let his words sink into our ears. We stay faithful. And yet in all of this, the hearts of the disciples drifted to their own self-interests. We're not unlike them. And we can learn from them. Because when our hearts drift towards selfishness and pride, stay faithful. In overwhelming difficulties, stay faithful. In all kinds of ways, when circumstances don't make sense, stay faithful. And when our hearts begin to drift towards selfishness, to pride, stay faithful. They understood who Jesus was, but they really hadn't grasped how he was going to be their rescuer. Their focus was still very much on them and not on others. Their hearts were self-focused, self-driven, self-congratulating, and self-centered. They longed for greatness because they could feel it. They could sense that their greatness was this close. So they had this conversation, this argument. And I love how Jesus doesn't crush their desire for greatness. He actually reframes it. As he flipped their thinking upside down by telling them that in order to live, they would need to die And in order to to save their life, they would need to lose their lives. He reframes greatness for them. He says, you can be great, but here's how how it happens. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach remarks that greatness is not found in stature. Nor does it come through comparison, but it resides in knowing Jesus. And so Jesus, he brings a child to the center of this greatness debate. And he boldly declares that the one who is least is the one who is great. He says, if you want to be great, put others first. Put yourself last. If you want to be great, serve someone. If you want to be great, spend time with those who cannot repay you. If you want to be great, serve those who won't appreciate it. If you want to be great, spend time with those who everyone else would say they're a waste of time. However, Jesus wasn't putting down children here, but he was appealing to a common understanding that they would have that children under 12 who were not taught the Torah would be a waste of time. If you can't train them and teach them yet in this, they were a waste of time because they couldn't be taught the Torah. But spending time with a child would not build your resume, is what the disciples thought. Spending time with a child would not enhance their stature or grow their influence. And yet Jesus says, that's exactly how you build true greatness. You want to be great? Well, here's a real easy one for us. Start by volunteering for VBS this summer. You want to be great? There are opportunities to spend time with kids, to spend time with children who probably won't thank you. Some of them might. But it's going to build in them a future. You want to build your resume and enhance your stature and grow your influence and build to true greatness. Spend your life by investing in kids and teenagers. When you serve young people, you serve Jesus. And when you serve Jesus, you are recognizing the majesty of the one who sent him. Now in this last little section, John comes to Jesus and I don't know what John was thinking, but he clearly wasn't listening. Because after all of this, 
I think John is like this eager puppy looking for a treat from Jesus. John's focus is still very much self-centered. The disciples had fallen into the trap of comparing themselves to one another, but now they find themselves still comparing themselves to others outside. They were given permission to pursue greatness, but not by considering themselves better than others. Not with a heart that drifts to selfishness and pride. Not with a heart that draws lines of contention between us and them. John had to think that Jesus would be proud of his enforcer-protector posture. That he was coming and telling Jesus, we guarded the mission of you for ourselves. And instead, Jesus again reframes his thinking. If this unknown follower of Jesus is not against you, then he's for you. Over and over again, Jesus is clear. Listen, obey. You want greatness? You want to see the majesty of God even in the places where you would least expect it? Stay faithful. Through faithfulness to his word, the majesty of God is on display. But what does this mean for you? What does this mean for me today? How do we consider greatness? This is a different way of thinking. This perspective that Jesus brings is very different from what comes naturally to us. He reframes what greatness should be. He set the example by becoming poor so that we might be rich. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And I think we'll do this. We often begin our days, or our day specifically, with Jesus on the throne of our lives. With the best of intentions. And I believe the disciples desired this. After all, who did Peter say that Jesus is? The Christ of God. He knew. But as our days go on, things go well, we think we did it. We find success, and we think it's because, well, I'm pretty smart. Of course I had success. When we win, or we climb the ladder, or we get complimented, or we gut out our faithfulness through sheer willpower, or we ace the test, or we make good choices we slowly lose our focus. We slowly begin to think at how clever and likable and strategic and committed we are and our hearts drift. Greatness resides in knowing Jesus. I want to end this morning by reading what Paul had to say to the Philippian church. And in that, he's reframing for them what greatness looks like. And he gives us a perfect picture of the majesty of Jesus. And he shows us how we can attain greatness. You'll hear some familiar phrases in here. But here's what it says in Philippians chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility's in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now here's the example of Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider or count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, to the majesty of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you, as all, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to act, and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 14, catch this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Sound familiar? In the midst of a twisted and crooked generation, we can shine. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, we can shine as lights in the world when we hold fast to the word of life. It's through faithfulness to his word, the majesty of God is on display. See, God will take our failures and he'll take our uncertainties and our misplaced focus and he doesn't bury us in our sin. He gives us hope. He calls us to listen to him. He says that because of Jesus, we can be blameless and innocent, shining as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Let this sink into your ears. Stay faithful. There's growth in the valley. And even though it may be hard to see, stay faithful. It's worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for this powerful word and for the examples that we've seen all throughout here. We thank you for examples of failure that the disciples had. Because they learned through that. It taught them amazing things that, that paid off down the road. And it tells us and teaches us that we can learn through those difficult circumstances, through those confusing circumstances. And even when we fail and get our eyes off of you and onto us, you can still teach us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to love you. Help us to listen and obey and to do it, and to have ears to hear. Thank you for Jesus. Thanks for examples of mountaintop experiences. Thanks for those in our lives that we can have those mountaintop experiences to spur us on and to carry us. But thank you for the growth that happens in the valley. And help us to embrace those times as we trust you, as we lean into you, and as we turn our eyes to Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand. Let's sing in response. I count on one thing. The same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now. In the waiting, the same God who's never late is working all things out, working all things out. Yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will 
joy when my heart is heavy all my days. Yes, I will. I count on one day. The same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the waiting. The same God who's never late is working all things out. You're working all things out. Yes, I will lift you high in the shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will lift you high in the lowest valley. How can we do that? How can we not just long for the mountains and then just like run to the next mountain? Because even while we walk through the valley, the valley of the shadow of death or whatever valley, he is with us. His presence is with us. And there is majesty in that valley if we long for it. If we, if we stay faithful, if we hold on to the word of truth that gets us from one point to the next, 
in the days, the normal, boring days of life, the regular days. Embrace the majesty of that through Jesus because he's with us. I pray that you do that this week as we go, that you would embrace Jesus for all that he is and his word. And